Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Seeking What They Saw. It is I, one of your hosts, Anthony Leiter, back again with another exciting and riveting episode. And today is exciting because we got a chance to interview our new friend, Kendra Arsenault. Now, Kendra is the current host of the Imago Gay podcast in connection with Spectrum Magazine, and we got a chance to sit down and sort of listen to her journey as a queer Adventist, as well as her process towards affirming theology. Now, before we dive straight into that, a few quick reminders for you guys. The first is that this episode is part of a larger series called LGBTQ plus Adventists and the Bible. It's a five-part series where we're trying to do intentional listening to those in the LGBTQ plus community, as well as deeply wrestle with the scriptures. So a quick invitation for you, if you have not listened to the uh, introductory or the first episode in the series, hey, now might be a good chance to go back and listen to those. They give some great context uh, to where we're at in this episode today. Second thing is just a reminder that these episodes do contain sensitive content. Uh, There are some issues discussed around topics like sexual assault and other forms of trauma, so there is some adult language. Um, So that's just for you to know so that you can plan accordingly. Finally, thank you so much once again for listening, for supporting the podcast. Those of you who uh, who have already had conversations with us, made comments, stuff like that, we really appreciate the dialogue. And please, if you, even if you hear something you disagree with today, um, or maybe you agree with it, or you just want to uh, come alongside, make a comment, hey, we would love to hear that from you guys. So please do not hesitate to reach out. All right. With all that said, let's dive straight into this episode with Kendra. All right. All right. Well, here we are. What an exciting day it is because we have an awesome guest on today. We just want to welcome Kendra. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you for having me. We are excited and um, we have a lot to talk about. But first, we love to do a few getting to know you questions just so um, we have met before. We have taken class before here at seminary, Andrews University. Uh, But just so everyone can get to know you a little bit better. who are you? I always, whenever I meet new people, I'm always like, who are you? Where do you come from and, and where are you going? But I'm realizing that <laughs> those are super vague. So let's You're just with... singing the lyrics of Cotton Eye Joe right now. So. Pretty, it, pretty much. <laughs> where did you come from? Where, where did you, come you go? From? Where did you go, Cotton Eye Joe? Um, no, Kendra, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Where is home for you? Tell us about, about yourself. Uh, so I am originally born in Panama, but grew up in California most of my life. Um, so Bay Area, Monterey, spent some time in LA for, for college, but California is my home. I would consider, uh, yeah. Nice. That's all. And did you go to Monterey Bay Academy? No, I did not. My parents are not Adventist. Uh, Yeah. Gotcha. Nice. Oh, interesting. So when did your, when did you all, either your whole family or I guess if if they're not still Adventist or if they are now, or when did you become Adventist? So I actually became Adventist when I was... 12. I was baptized. I was uh, hanging around some local neighborhood friends and one of them was Adventist and she was my best friend and I went to church with her. And it just kind of stuck with me. So uh, that was my first introduction to like real faith and yeah, still the only Adventist in my family. Wow. Yeah. Well, so it's been a journey since then. I, I mean, did, so now you're at Andrews, is that correct? Or you're no, in the area? I graduated. I'm in Boston you now. Gra- you're in Boston now. Yep. You were at and were you at Andrews for a while when you were doing your podcast there? Yeah, or I was, was that? I was at Andrews for three and a half years. Got it. Okay. Would you mind running through kind of your journey um, from uh, sort of that age of twelve as a Christian and now as an Adventist into um, kind of like the, the sort of the past the, the past few events of the last few years. It's a long uh, pan- span of time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you have 30 you seconds. Tell us your entire life yeah, story. Um, tell two us minutes. the whole thing. Yeah, it's a <laughs> very abridged version. Um, so I was baptized when I was 12. I had, a, I would say, uh, I was an Adventist. So it was an Adventist church. Um, so I began keeping the Sabbath and doing these kind of particular things of Adventist dietary laws, of eating clean. Uh, not drinking, all that kind of stuff. 
stayed away from caffeine for the most part. And I took that on very young. Uh, then I went off to college and kind of found myself among religion. And when I came back to college, sorry, when I came back from college around 22, um, I really had more academic questions about the Bible. Um, so I began my own kind of exploration. And I think it led me down a very fundamentalist route. I got caught up with kind of a fundamentalist perspective and group of people um, for a time. And then I said, I, I need more. And so I ended up going to um, Adventist Seminary, and I graduated with my uh, master's in divinity in uh, December. Wow. Yep. And then on top of that, there's, and you, you started a podcast, correct? Do you correct. want to tell us, this is before Imago Gay, the one you're currently with. When yeah. did you start that? So I started that in August of 2018. Um, I was working for ALC, and I was working as a, an editor there. I'd been working in marketing, graphic design, editing, uh, for about 10 years prior. And so I came to campus really wanting to have a job because I don't want to be in debt. I don't believe in debt, uh, or unnecessary debt if I can help it. Um, but uh, so I started working there and they were looking to launch a couple new projects. And I had a pitch of starting like an Adventist Ted talk, right? Where the, the answers that I was seeking, um, it didn't have to be kept in these kind of closed quarters. I think there's a lot of confusion in lay Adventism mm. about what's important, what's not, what's the Bible say about this and that. And I mm -hmm. think there's a lot of infighting that can happen. And I thought, well, let's just bring on the experts and uh, see if any nuance they can bring to the table. Yeah, that makes sense. And then on top of that, you had a whole nother journey that was happening in your life as well, sort of behind the scenes, if, if that's fair and then it and then it, it came out at some point do you want to tell us a little bit about that yes um it's interesting talking specifically about sexuality yes mm -hmm. very, yeah. sorry very, that was vague very smooth and gentle way of interesting no it's your favorite sports team favorite sports team <laughs> yeah. you've been a secret nsa agent this whole time <laughs> how did you know <laughs> um so it's interesting to me because i just want to start off with saying like it's it's a it's a question that is in a lot of ways, and I saw your subtlety there, is very invasive, right? Mm. Uh, I think so. I work currently right now um, at a hospital, and I work along the autopsy team. And something that mm. just blows my mind is that, you know, you can't cut somebody open without their consent or their family's consent, right? Uh, and then it's an incredibly invasive process, right? There's a lot of respect and rules about how you go about doing an autopsy, and it's for educational purposes, mm. right? So this is supposed to advance medicine, advance science, advance, uh, help find cures for diseases. And so in some ways, I put myself on the table and said, okay, I'll, mm. doing interviews like this, it's an autopsy, right? Like you're going to, yeah. we're mm -hmm. going to go through, we're going to find out what's going on, the inner workings. Um, but not everybody is open to that. And I think if, Anyone who flag, flies the flag of LGBTQ, sometimes Christians and family members and friends feel like they have a right to go into the autopsy with them mm -hmm. and begin pulling things apart. And it just they just don't, right? Uh, you have to get consent. Somebody has to be wanting to be in a place of education. And not everybody wants to be in a place of education, especially because if you have any vague idea of what an autopsy is, it is very brutal, right? Mm, uh, it's yeah. it's a exposing yourself in many layers. Um, and some people, you know, to extend the pun, don't come out of it alive, right? Mm. So to be very gentle around those types of questions. But I put myself on the table, and I'll go ahead and uh, answer that. Because, yeah, it, it, I think there was a, an underlying journey of um, sexuality and exploration and... Um, you know, looking at my own attraction towards women. Uh, I was dating a wonderful guy in college. And I remember, you know, we were having this talk in my car outside of my apartment one night and uh, sitting in the driver's seat, he's sitting in the passenger seat. And he's just like, I don't feel like you've ever like really truly kissed me before. Hmm. And I'd gone through a lot of stuff and a lot of life up to this point. And there are many reasons that I had felt guarded and insecure. And I just remember thinking like, it wasn't a question about me being a bad kisser. It was just like, where am I? Why are you not present in this moment? Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, I'm going to close my eyes 
and take myself back to a place that I felt completely safe and able to be vulnerable in the ways that he's asking me to be in this moment. And I thought back on one of my best friends growing up. And in that moment, like I kissed him with her face and he, you know, he's like, yeah, that's the first time I feel like you've ever kissed me. And for me, I realized, oops, you know, there's a problem here, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That we're not having this relationship, that I'm in another space, another time. And so I began realizing these disconnects. I went on to the casually date, but I think um, by the time I left college, I was, I was in a place where I think I wanted stability so badly that I was looking for God. You know, I was looking for ultimate truth. I was looking for objectivism because I felt like I needed something to stand on. Mm. And it took me down a very fundamentalist route of understanding the Bible, which also took me down a route of suppression of myself and my own identity. Mm. That's so interesting because you, you said... It was, was it after this, if I'm hearing you correctly, that you kind of went down the fundamentalist route? Yep, yep, yep. So was that, was it in any way a reaction to what you were feeling and a wanting of, uh, you said you said you wanted stability. Was it a reaction to how you were feeling or was it m more areas of life and it just that just happened to be one of them or? You know, it's so funny. I think at ages 18 to 26, I think that's the time you're going to find people falling into cults, getting wrapped mm. up into hyper-spiritualism, right? Like, I think yeah. it's a time where people are looking for themselves in more ways than one because there's financial vulnerability. Maybe it's the first time you're living on your own. You don't have a great job. You're mm -hmm. living with three or four roommates to make ends meet. You have a lot of stressors that are impacting your mental health. And so I think all of those stressors were on me. And I think I just wanted to be rescued from a mm -hmm. portion of life that I think is very normal. But I was just like, ah, I needed a way out of this. And I think God for me at that moment was that answer. Mm -hmm. So then from there, kind of really diving into fundamentalism, what was your journey from there into a, a space of saying, I need to be honest with myself and, and like you said, putting yourself on the table for the world to see? Because at the time when you did um, come forward with, with this, this aspect of your life, you were, you were part of a, 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 a very successful, very um, fairly well-known Adventist podcast uh, and it was that was Advent Next, if I'm correct, and um, and of course it had some it had repercussions all the way through your life. So, what was the journey to get to that point? Um, very long. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, so, going down the fundamentalist route, I ended up getting married, and I was married to somebody who had very traditional views on the Bible, but kind of posed themselves as having a very progressive. I think they were like post liberal going back to conservative in some ways. Mm. It's like, yeah, I've already been through that, but like, huh. I feel like this is the way. So it was kind yeah. of this full loop for me. Like I had gone from my own childhood faith to a very liberal understanding then to be like post-liberal. Um, but it was just like, it wasn't really post-liberal. It was just fundamentalism. Um, but it was, it was an abusive relationship. I think the structures under which that uh, relationship was had, the beliefs that this person was coming to that I didn't know if he really believed that or if he was just kind of living according to how he thought he should. But it became a very oppressive environment, not just for me um, as a woman and my role, uh, but, but there's a lot of financial abuse. I spent some time living in my car. I, mm. uh, there was emotional, physical, um, all of that. And Coming out of that um, environment uh, and being on my own again, there was a core part of me that, you know, didn't die, right? As far as like, mm. uh, I think our true selves are always seeking for its fullest expression. So me as a woman and wanting uh, independence, like I... I, I I always had like an academic drive. I graduated valedictorian. I went to UCLA. Like I knew I was a, a smart person to be put into a role just felt beneath me. Right. Uh, but mm. I think there was a lot of acquiescence to that because it was all based on the premise of needing to be saved. Right. Mm -hmm. So if I have to give up my liberty to be saved, well, of course you're going to do that. It's the same reason 
why people give up certain political rights, you know, under the guise of your safety, right? Mm, so wow. I think yeah. for me, um, that was something that I was willing to do. And then I realized this is a structure that I can't live under any longer. And I began looking for um, a God that would affirm me because I knew that God did, mm. but I couldn't find it in the structures around me and in, in the local church, in this relationship and people's understanding of the Bible. So I thought I've got to go to seminary. Like someone out there is enlightened enough and is also kind enough to include me in how they interpret the Bible. And so my first episode on Advent Next was women's ordination, right? Mm -hmm. And it was an affirming view of women's ordination. So I've always had um, a desire to affirm these parts of me that were, that I knew got affirmed mm -hmm. and were real, but uh, for some reason I couldn't find them institutionally. Wow. And then the the journey, if I can ask, to get to that point where you're now running this, you're, you're, you're hosting this podcast, and um, tackling all these questions to the point of you saying, I need to be honest with, with what was it so much? I, I can't recall the, the exact story, but did you, did you feel the need to, to, to come out or did you, was that sort of, you, you were forced into some sort of that position or how did that happen? So definitely not forced. I mean, I think um, I've always been an advocate as far as like, I come from a mixed background. I, I, my background is African-American studies, international development, like the heart of ad advocacy has always been with me, even in the programs that I was doing with Advent Next, was looking for a more just and more reasonable way to approach theology in a way where we consider the human being, uh, where there is a practical side to it that is not ignoring how this is affecting the human experience, right? Mm. Um, so it was Pride Month. Uh, and I had Alicia Johnston on for a couple episodes. I had Paul Anthony Turner on. Um, and I was in a space in my life where, you know, COVID was happening. And I think I, you know, during that period of time, uh, I think the question of, you know, how does God feel about LGBTQ people just became one of those all um all-encompassing issues for me. Mm. And so I began reading voraciously and I began really studying uh, persistently this particular theology and coming across Alicia and her book and wanting to hear her side to the story, um, something that is not, you know, when I think about academia, you think about free freedom spaces, right? Mm -hmm. A space where truths are challenged and where we're not afraid to find answers or to bring in other people for dialogue. Mm -hmm. So essentially that's what I thought I was doing. Um, and I saw kind of some negative feedback based on a, her perspective and things that she was saying. And somebody who had been in the world of like reading a lot and a lot and a lot, I know they're not gonna get all the answers from this episode with Alicia, but because we're so undereducated in this particular arena, uh, people weren't satisfied with that. She didn't answer all the questions in an episode or two, right? Like, mm. so there was a lot of negativity that was coming up and I wanted to say, Hey, everyone slow down. Like, is there a world where we can agree to disagree? Right. Mm -hmm. And this issue is important to me because I'm also bisexual. And so if you're going to be, you know, I don't want to set up my guests in a way where I'm not taking the heat, mm -hmm. but I put myself in, uh, you know, in the pot, so to speak, because I don't, I don't know. I just found it very cowardly to say, here, come onto my platform yeah. and you can mm -hmm. take all the heat, but I'm going to sit back. I thought, no, like I'm stepping to the front because I'm a part of this and I'm not going to allow my guests to be attacked in this way. So Kendra, would you say that after that, that moment, that, that moment where you, you felt the courage and the, the conviction to do that during that, that series with Alicia, when you look when you look back on that, do you find that the the reaction was more positive or more negative? Like when you hear, I'm sure there were a lot of voices. You were very visible in Adventism. We could see your podcast. We saw it on YouTube, and and we saw the news as well. And so that's that put you you were already in the spotlight. But did it feel kind of overwhelming at first to have people talking about you so much, whether it was positive or negative? How how did that feel? Mm -hmm. I think it it. It felt worst at that time just because it was also an institutionally backed um, decision, right? It wasn't just some troll on YouTube 
saying submit woman, whatever, right? You have the institution who is also financing this project saying we're no longer holding contracts to you and mm. give us back this project, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That it's something that you don't expect for the people who said, hey, be brave, go out there, answer yeah. hard questions, yeah, do right. the investigative work, be real, get numbers, connect with the audience to now say you're on your own. And I know that there is some background things happening at the NAD as I, a year into this, I have fa- I found out more of the people who were involved in that and I can understand why they made that decision because mm. you, know, you had the top leadership basically saying, get rid of her, we're pulling your funding. Mm. So. I, I can understand it on that level, but at the time, I think it was just, it was a lot. Yeah. Was that just, I, I, we don't need to dwell on this part too long, but did did they at least have a personal conversation with you or was it very corporate, like you got an email or a letter that like, hey, we're pulling your program, like you can't do this or like, what was that like? Well, me and the person who runs ALC, we, we've been very close for uh, the entire time that I was there. And so it was a meeting, but, um, and I could tell that he was very sorry to have made the decision, mm-hmm. but also felt like his hands were tied. And so I understood that in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I just asked because we've, we've talked about with others too, that it just feels like with this topic specifically, like you said, we can't be open and or it feels like we can't be as open as we'd like to be at least discussing. And, and as like you said, to agree to disagree and, and just prog- move forward as a church without the stakes feeling so incredibly high. You're an example of that. You lost a position that was meaningful to you um, and meaningful for many people that you, you were doing amazing work uh, through Avent Next. And so uh, we could only hope to ever be half as professional as you were on that. 100%. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't. We're never. We're never going to be professional. For those, not. for those listening, uh, we literally started late, uh, so that just shows you how professional we are. So, yeah. Uh, but, but again, thank you, Kendra, for for being open about that. I just, um, yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think is the way that we, as a church, move forward with this conversation on LGBTQ issues without feeling like we have to hold back, where we can just be honest, yeah. and whether we're Adventist professionals working for the church, we're employed, employed by the church or not, how do we do that without feeling like we're going to lose, you know, our livelihood or uh, lose reputation or, or really break off relationships that are good? That Yeah. Yeah. I would say you cannot do that until policy changes, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, wow. Uh, Spectrum, the one who's currently supporting the Imago Gay podcast, uh, was kicked out of the cult convention because of their association with me and the mm. podcast. Wait, and, really? Wow. Yep. This is a recent uh, article happened. you can read. Uh-huh, just Didn't happened. even know about this. That's wow. Cult convention, for those who don't know, is a uh, it's the North American Division's uh, conference for all of the like pastors and other leaders um, that are part of the NAD. So, and that's happening. As, as we're recording, it's happening right now. It's happening. Uh, this is yeah. mid-June of 2022, and it's happening right now. So you're saying that that because of you, yep. um, this, wow. just, it's your fault, Kendra. <laughs> it's, it's because of you that, and, and I say that as a joke, but 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 the now saying this seriously, like um, because of you, they are they are taking that, and that that's that says something that they're that they're standing. They're standing with you through that too. That's huge. I'm very grateful to Spectrum. You know, I think they have um, Alexander, the president of Spectrum. You know, reached out to me shortly after things happened with because uh, I'd I think we had a semi relationship. I'd written maybe an article or two for them in the past, um, but really stepped up to the plate when everything happened with ALC. And he's like, "How can we make a project work uh, with you? We would love to work with you." support you in any way and he has kept to his word and so him along with sda kinship came along and really provide my first employment since uh losing my job and really helped to carry me through for a period of time and so recently um i guess in the article you can read like he had a conversation with the nad president um and that basically it was like it's not just imago gay Yes, that's bad. We're we're taking a theological position, but it's also Kendra, and mm. that she's a problem. And I was like, I don't know what that means, but like, mm. please elaborate. And 
of course, none of these conversations with the people who are having these conversations and making those decisions are being had with me. Mm-hmm. But apparently they find this. My guess is that uh, they believe that because my last job was NAD, was under the NAD, they feel as though anybody else who wants to be affiliated with the church should not employ me because it would be contradicting their uh, their decision, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and so they're coming and they're punishing Spectrum for its employment of me and their association, even though they promise to abide by all the guidelines, not even promote the podcast at this convention, but just to be a resource for other pastors. So even though all that was said, they were still denied just because of their known uh, affiliation with me. So That's a little... Uh... Excessive, right? Yeah, and... That frankly, that frankly makes me a little <laughs> makes me a little upset. It's 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 a little rich. I think um, I guess there's just some irony there, like coming from the same office that so verbally and and openly criticized the general conference's push for compliance, to now in this microcosm moment push for such Ooh. hard compliance. Like that's just you know the same, and you know this isn't a personal attack on you know, anyone, but yeah, I'm just thinking of it is. It's specifically a, a, a personal attacks on just, do you want to go ahead and name names, Anthony? Let's just name some names. I'm just, always the just, one who's, but I'm a nobody. So I can, I can say. To, to be fair. I don't even know the names. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to mention names. At this let's just, point. let's just, let's just blame Patty McCoy. He's not perfect. even do it. Yep. Patty. Yeah, that's perfect. For those who don't know, Patty's a friend of ours and we just heap all the blame on him. Indeed. But I, so Kendra, with where you're at, can I just ask you a question about, like Adventism specifically, I grew up in Adventism. In fact, all four of us guys on this podcast did, um, like from birth, you know, you came into the church as as a, as a 12 year old and have journeyed with it since. Uh, I'm not saying that 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 makes your Adventism, um, like less rooted in your life than ours, but like, it's one of those things where I remember it from day one in my life, you've grown up into it as, as a, um, as, as a, as a, somebody who you, 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 chose it specifically at some point in life. Mm -hmm. And then the thing that you chose, the entity that you chose rejected you as a person to a a large degree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It didn't choose you in the same, in the same sense that it might, we might say with us, it rejected who you were as a person to a degree. Maybe that's a fair assessment. Maybe it's not, but that's what it seems like to me. And where do you, how do you, how do you rationalize your faith alongside that? Was it was that rocked by by that moment, or did you always feel like your faith was fairly secure in that in that way, or and continues to be rocked, considering what you just shared? Yeah, true. Yeah, I I would say if if my faith was tied to an institution, it would be rocked, right? Yeah. I think for me, somebody, every, I think everyone feels like maybe they've had some advantages in their perspectives, but I really do feel like being uh, raised in the public system and in a family that is non-religious, it's kept me quite conscious um, that the church is not always appealing to the everyday person and is not always mm-hmm. in touch with everyday lives. And so I've also had like this dual accountability in my head of not just to people who are inside the church, but like, how are we going to actually reach and be accountable to the larger ethic of how the community and the world is growing and learning and changing. And are we, do we really have something for them uh, that appeals to them? And mm-hmm. we're not just like picking off the sick and the weak and bringing them into our cult, right? Mm-hmm. That we can really be a strong presence in the current world that we live in and yeah. really uh, talk with the, with the greater minds of today. And so, I feel like my relationship with God continues to just grow and that I see, Mm. uh, you know, the fact that God continues to bless me, even though the church uh, isn't, for me is just a sign, and maybe it shouldn't be, but in some ways a sign that he's still taking care of me and that I'm I'm not under the eye of his disapproval Mm. in this sense. And also kind of the space has allowed me to unlearn things that I would now consider to be kind of toxic practices. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Could, could I just ask, so we've had, um, we have friends who are part of the LGBTQ community. We have friends who um, 
uh, are are both affirming and non-affirming. I mean, it's you get the spectrum of people in in your life, and that's just that's just uh, reality. Um, we've talked with people who um, might consider themselves as formerly gay, and when they look at biblical texts, they come at, they come at it and see this is a problem, this is a sin, and <laughs> and therefore, and they, I mean, they have amazing stories of God's work in their life. Uh, or maybe they're not formally gay, but they would consider themselves uh, that they the call is to be celibate. Um, for you, and this is not a trick question. I, I just genuinely want to hear your story in this. How did you come to the point of because you said this before? You said that you felt like God was affirming of you. He he he, he cared about you. Mm-hmm. How did you come to that point? Especially when you consider the um, and I I say this not as holding a position, but um, I just say this in this way, the perceived clarity of the texts of scripture, because they seem to be so explicit and blunt. How did you come to the place where you felt like God was affirming of you and were, were able to kind of journey through that process with the text as well? Um, and you don't have to go crazy deep into all the text yeah. and everything, but just how, what was that part of that journey for you? It's very interesting that you asked this question because I think my journey to affirming has been my same journey that I took to women's ordination and I'll clarify. So I think a lot of my own exposition of scripture has come through some type of experience. There was a time um, in my previous relationship when I was married, I was living in my car for like a month or a week at a time. The greatest link was about a month at a time. And I was in a place where I was so in this mindset that, you know, I can't tell my family of what's going on. They would have supported me. They would have made sure that that was not my situation if I would have told them. But I had this sense of like mission and calling of how am I going to witness to my family if they Mm -hmm. know this is happening to me by an Adventist? Mm -hmm. Like, how am I going to sell them my faith when my faith has led me down this dark hole? Like, there's nothing attractive here. And I felt like I had the need to keep silent. And so I did. And I suffered in silence. And I remember one night, being parked by the beach. I just went there recently on my trip back to California and looking at this view that I would look at every night. And it's literally like I'm parked by this house and there's a big fence so they can't see me. And then right across the street is the beach. And then there's a one way street, sorry, one lane street right ahead of me. And you can only see about maybe like 30, 20 yards, 30 yards. It's kind of a narrow perspective. And there's no stop signs there. It's just just a road. And one night, I'm about 10 o'clock. I'm literally reading my Kindle, uh, Ellen White, selected messages, <laughs> 10 wow. o'clock. Dedicated. Uh, dedicated, trying to find answers also for my life to be like, why, is, why, is, why are things not working? Well, how can I just be good enough to fix this person? Why mm. am, is there something really wrong with me that I deserve this? Am I just being rebellious? Do I need to accept my place as a woman? And trying to find some type of liberty and hope in these writings that were supposed to give me all of that, right? And um, 10 o'clock at night, and I hear the screeching of these tires. And it's Saturday night, like, this happens. People are drunk. They're by the beach. I don't even look up from my Kindle. And I hear this guy screaming. And immediately, I knew that he was talking to, to a woman, like that there's just something about his voice, the downward angle of his voice, the condescension. I'd heard this before. I, I know the spirit. I know this man. I've never met him, but I've heard him a thousand times before. And he stops in the middle of the street, gets out of his truck, goes around, um, pulls the woman out of the passenger seat and tells her to get out of the car. And she's silent. I don't hear a word from her. And she begins to walk away. And all I can think about is just get out of there. You don't deserve to be treated this way. Um, if he doesn't want you, I'll, I'll, I'll take you. I'll find some place for you. Like I'll, I'll be a nest for you. And I don't know exactly why I was thinking all of those things, but that, that's just my natural reaction to this situation. And she's walking. And the last thing he says is, give me back my sweatshirt as well. She takes off her sweatshirt and she has nothing underneath it but her bra. And so it's 10 o'clock at night. He peels off. She's walking down the street in her bra and her jeans. I run after her. I have a trunk full of clothes that I've been keeping there for a long time. 
uh, since I've been living out the trunk of my car. I bring her a sweater. I cover up. I give her the speech of like, you don't deserve this. Let's find you someplace. And her response to me is, no, no, no. I got to get back to him. I got to go back. And she's in the loop, you know, the loop and the cycle and the toxic cycle of that relationship. And I give her my number. I give her some money. And I say, if you need help, like, call me. I get back to my car and I say, it it dawns on me. I feel God speaking to me saying in that moment, everything you felt towards this woman is what I feel towards you in your situation. Mm. Like, there is my answer. I want to know what God's thinking. I wanted to know how, what he thought about my situation and how to get out of it. And I'm trying to find it in these texts, trying to find it in the Bible. I'm trying to find it in Ellen White writings. I'm trying to find the solution. And right there in front of me, he says, how you feel towards her is how I feel towards you. Get out, go, be safe. And from that moment forward, I changed my theology on divorce, on, uh, you know, I thought the most I could do is maybe separate from this person and somehow deal with this from a distance. But it's like divorce, equality. Um, he, he gave me a theology in that moment that prioritized my safety and my thriving over keeping to some t- type of narrative. Hmm. Wow. And place that, you know, so that's, that's one particular event that happened that helped me work through texts that I was just going round and round and round and never finding an answer to. When it comes to the LGBTQ question, for me, I think being in close proximity to someone who um, who actually fell in love with me <laughs> hmm. and um, and to see her struggle in a way where, I, I again, I wish I could have the same compassion upon myself that I have upon other people. Cause sometimes mm-hmm. it takes somebody else going through it for me to change because I will allow myself to suffer. I will allow myself to be mistreated. Mm-hmm. And I continue to like have to fight that part of me that has been indoctrinated through church about humility and suffering and thinking that there's some type of reward in that. But when I see somebody else suffering, and I looked at this person and I could see it in their eyes and their being. They, are, they have tried so hard to be with the man. They have tried so hard to make those relationships work. And they genuinely, genuinely, genuinely would never be happy in that relationship. And it was my compassion for somebody else that made me say, I'm going to fight for you. Mm. Like, and we're going to look through these texts together. But in that fight... You know, I was also fighting for myself, um, but it took somebody else for me to have a compassion enough to say, I don't believe that God would sentence you to a life where you are not thriving. So that was kind of the initial breakthrough was just compassion, mm. compassion and empathy and a desire for someone to have um, an okay life, you know. So that was the first part, the first oh, step. Wow, Kendra. Well, first off, Man. thank you so much for sharing all that. Um, yeah, and an honor to listen to that part of your story. Um, I'm thinking about, and again, we're we're not trying to get lost in the weeds uh, of the text today, sure. but because um, essentially, what I'm hearing you say is those key experiences and moments created a paradigm shift for you and then from that paradigm shift you were able to approach the text in a new way is is that okay Um, yeah yeah i was able to see things that were and i'll let you finish like able to see things that i might have been blind to previously Mm, okay yeah so i guess i'm just thinking about people like my grandparents or um you know folk and I guess this is a classic Anthony playing devil's advocate. Classic because I'm, for some reason, I always end up doing this. Um, curious, curious for you, how do you respond to the folk who, you know, say, hey, you know, your emotions are, are deceitful. That's, that's in the scriptures. You can't trust your heart. You're, 
you know, you can't trust an, an emotional experience or a spiritual experience. All The only thing we can trust is the Bible. Sola Scriptura, Sola Toda, Prima Scriptura. <clears throat> you went to seminary. You already graduated. So you know this. I'm still struggling along. But you you took Peckham's classes, so you know this already. Um, you know, the text and only the text. This is, you know, we're people of the book. How How do you respond to that type of critique, someone coming in and hearing that story and saying, oh, wow, well, you know, that's a beautiful story, but the text says this, we go where the text set, you know, leads. Yeah. How, how do you respond to that, that perspective? I would say it's sola scriptura, not solo scriptura. So it's not only the text, it's the text has preeminence, but we're also using reason experiences in our faculty. That's why we don't just get caught up in the KJV only, uh, debates, right? We're able to implement other parts of our reason and our experience to look at the text in a meaningful way. And so when I look at something like, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah, I see that as a text that's primarily about violence and rape, right? Mm. Uh, I don't see this as a town of homosexuals, right? I see this as a town that was used to humiliating outsiders. They were xenophobic, right? Mm -hmm. They did not want strangers in their land, and they wanted to be scary and send an awful report to say, don't come to Sodom, because Sodom was rich in resources, right? That's why Lot chose Sodom. Mm -hmm. um, so they wanted to send a message to outsiders that this is a fierce country, and don't come here, right? And so I see violence, I see rape, mm -hmm. you know? When you look at Leviticus 18, it's couched in what? It's couched in all of these laws against incest, about the ways of, you know, uncovering your father's nakedness, et cetera, and not sleeping with your daughter-in-law. Like all of these things that are, well, we today would say like, these are kind of morally repugnant, right? You don't, you don't have incest because also like real genetic reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's something there that like, even today we can agree with and say, mm, that's gross. Or don't sacrifice your children to Molech is like right after that verse. Mm -hmm. So to me that says, it's talking about something that's probably not consensual or something that is uh, that is harmful to the person, mm -hmm. right? Like we when we talk about morality, show me where homosexuality, being gay, and two people consenting to be in that relationship, where where is the actual ethical harm, right? So when we talk about ethics, there has to be actually we're talking about harm reduction. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about, well, ethereally, my morality is offended. Okay, well, where does it exist in a person, right? Like mm -hmm. in these laws of, you know, don't marry a, a, a mother and her daughter, it's talking about like, don't lie with them because you're creating some type of incest pool. And that's offensive to these people, mm -hmm. right? Like to force an incestuous relationship, like there's a victim there, right? Mm -hmm. Don't sacrifice your children to Moloch. There's a victim there. Mm -hmm. There's also no mention of women in Leviticus 18, right? So I guess lesbianism right. was okay until the days of Paul, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, because it only mentions men lying with men. Right. Exactly. Correct? Yeah. They don't talk about women. And so, you know, our, I, I think if it was specifically talking about that, um, then I think we'd have something a little bit more robust. Uh, when I think about the tenor of Scripture, and the, and the, yeah, the weight of scripture, mm -hmm. I feel that it's moving towards harm reduction towards people, right? Like mm -hmm. honoring God is also about honoring your neighbor, right? Like mm -hmm. the laws that he gave, you know, we talk about Old Testament, the acceptance of slavery, and the New Testament is the accepting of slavery, but is that God's ultimate ethical ideal? Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. slavery is not ethical. Uh, but we don't see an argument for it in the Bible. But we do see an argument for it if we're looking to, at the tenor of Scripture and mm -hmm. the way that it's moving towards how we should treat our neighbor, how we should treat every human being with dignity. Mm -hmm. So even when the Bible isn't explicit about what is just and what is right, we can gather based <laughs> on the average of what's happening and where God is trying to go and the kind of person he is and what he would advocate for. And I think these te texts require that type of critical analysis 
and, and using all of the faculties. So it's not a solo scriptura, it's sola. How do we mm. incorporate the weight of all of our knowledge? Psychology, education, mm-hmm. like these are professions that I also think are ordained by God. Right? that we need to incorporate in how we do theology. We can't be siloed off from the rest of the world mm-hmm. and think that we're having you know, really qualified conclusions to where we go. Wow. That's, that's a powerful answer, Kendra. I, Very. When I, when I hear you talk about this, what, what comes to my mind also is a kind of a toxic answer I've heard so often in our church. I know it's not just in the Adventist church, but just the, the phrase, the scriptures are clear before mm-hmm. proceeding to make an argument for one side or another. It doesn't just have to be on this issue. It can be anything. The, the scriptures the scriptures are clear. Let me tell you what I think they yes, say. Yes, right, yeah. right. And it's a, it's such a horrible way to start a conversation. It just, it draws lines, right? And and yet we use it as a comfort in our church. We want to be assured of our, our truth, our capital T truth within mm-hmm. our church. Um, it's just part of our DNA in, in creating like, this is who we are, biblically, theology. Like that's so important to us having assurance of salvation that's that's something that that so many cling on to so when i hear you talk about this the reality is as you talk about using all these different um you know professions and and ways of looking at the scriptures in different ways to really deeply exegete and really see there's more to it than just a simple here's what it says and this is what it means and there there can be Mm -hmm. multiple layers to that what, what you're saying is there's going to be a level of dissonance and there's going to be moments of gray and moments of, of going through saying, yeah, it's not as clear as we thought. We need to kind of meditate and wrestle through this um, maybe over the course of years. And the reality right now is that we have these two sides, affirming and traditional, and there doesn't seem to be room for a middle space. And I know mm-hmm. that we talked about earlier um, that you said there needs to be policy change. But in this moment, uh, I don't even know if this is a full question. I, I just kind of observe that we need that space where there can be both people that feel strong about traditional and also affirming, where we can just honestly, you know, talk and and hopefully be kind to one another, be loving to each other mm-hmm. as we go through that and wrestle mm-hmm. together because we're not going to get anywhere the way we do it now. And so I, I know you kind of answered it already with policy change, but Maybe I'll just ask one more time. What do you think would be the quickest or the uh, the most effective policy change to allow for that space? I would say any any removal of any policy that would penalize somebody for being affirming, mm-hmm. right? So the reason why people are afraid to speak out is because they're afraid they're going to lose their job and they're afraid to lose their job because there's some type of law or uh, something that is in our church, legalizing you being fired, right? There's some type of procedure or policy that you're violating. And so if we can begin to change that structurally, we say that Adventism is like from the bottom up, but it's not, right? Like if if people from the top can choose to fire you, (laughs) this is a top-down approach, right? Even if congregations are open and willing, uh, if somebody gets wind at the NAD that you're teaching affirming stuff, they're going to get rid of you and you're going to lose your job. Mm-hmm. So you can't create a safe space if there's still an entity that has teeth and is ready to pounce on anybody who is going to be divergent from that. And so otherwise you will continue to have people move around in secret. Um, how to begin to organize to make that policy change? I don't know, but I know that's something that needs to happen. Eric, you wanted to ask a question, right? Yeah, I was just going to kind of, uh, for Adventists and Christians who are, you know, unsure where they stand on the issue. They, you know, grew up Adventist or they know the traditional viewpoint. But I think we all, the compassionate side of us all, we want to affirm and, you know, love one another. And we're maybe struggling with the dissonance from someone in the LGBTQ community. How can we ask like honest questions without being offensive? Yeah. I think you just have to find willing participants and people who are educators Right. Like I said, not everyone's going to want to answer questions. So you can always ask, you know, say, hey, I have questions. Um, But I think also doing your own research and coming to it with a bit of knowledge. I think um, coming like every person is not an expert 
Like, it's like walking up to an African-American person and say, can you teach me about African-American history? It's like, well, mm. like, I don't know all that much. Like, I'm not the person to tell you. I can tell you a little bit about my experience. But also sometimes people don't even have language to talk about their experience, right? Like, they're still trying to figure out, like, what, how they're processing life and the ways that prejudice and bias have affected them. So it is important that you talk with people who have maybe spent some time thinking about it, but are also in a position of being an educator. I don't think every LGBTQ person is a target for questioning. I think at some point it does get invasive. Uh, so I think it's about finding the people who have made that their job to want to educate. Kendra, I know you get a run. Uh, would you want to just talk about in a quick couple minutes uh, about what you're doing right now and how people could find it? Yeah, so I'm running a podcast called Imago Gay, and uh, you can find it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts live. Um, and basically, you know, tackling some of these topics about queer theology, but also talking about queer experience in a way that it's not explicitly like let's let's dissect the Greek and the Hebrew of this passage, but I want to strengthen these other faculties of how we begin to reason and look at life and almost philosophize about how we can begin building bridges between the Christian and queer community. And just to clarify, it's spelled Imago, like I-M-A-G-O, and then Gay, G-E-I, correct? Correct. Which is a playoff of Imago Day, which is the image of God. So it's a pretty cool that was a great idea. Yeah. Thank um, you. <laughs> hey, Kendra, thank you so much. We really appreciate you have, having you on. I loved your perspective on on how how to look at scripture as an aggregate. Mm -hmm. um, your story. Thank you for sharing your story. It is. Yeah. It, it's, I know it's fraught with difficulties and, and challenges, but we're glad you're here and you're doing what you're doing. Um, thank you. And thank you for having this conversation with us. Yeah, Kendra. Well, thank, thank you. you. So. Want to just reiterate, like, you shared a lot of personal things today, and uh, one one piece of your story I connected with as a fellow divorced person, like. Just the fact, just your openness, your willingness to share. Thank you for allowing us into that part of your journey. You mentioned that a little bit at the beginning. But yeah, we just thank you for your graciousness. Mm -hmm. Very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys once again for listening to this episode with Kendra. There may be some links that we discussed during the episode and you will be able to find those in the show notes. All right. So before we finish, I just want to give a shout out to our producer, Eric, who somehow we're not even sure how this happened or when he had time, but somehow he won the 2022 Latvian tomato sauce chugging competition. Somehow he ingested a whopping 25 liquid pounds of tomato sauce in a single sitting and he's still alive so for that feat we just want to say congratulations eric you're incredible and no one does it like you we appreciate you all right everyone thank you so much for listening to this episode of seeking what they sought we'll see you next time